Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I've got a lovely show planned just for you today. I'm excited to bring David Wheaton back onto the program. Then Dr. Pierre Rose is going to join me, and then Jay Warner Wallace in Hour 2. We're going to discuss Aaron. Today is an extravaganza of things in the Old Testament, because Dr. Rose is going to talk about Ruth, David's going to talk about Exodus, and Jay Warner Wallace and I are going to talk about Aaron. So it's going to be a great day in the Old Testament. David Wheaton is the host of the Christian Worldview, and he's been a regular guest on the program for years, helping us navigate our way through Scripture. And he is in a study right now on Exodus. We call this series How Epic Exodus Displays the Awesome God. Today we're going to look at Exodus 27 through 31, and we're going to focus on the instructions for the Tabernacle Part 2. David, welcome. So good to be with you today, Bill. Thank. This is not a easy subject, the tabernacle. No, it's not. As I've been preparing for this, you just realize there's so much here. As a matter of fact, there's like I think there's seven chapters of Exodus on, on the on the tabernacle, and it can be pretty profound, and it can seem like it's being drawn out, and there's so much specificity, and you think, why is this? This seems so irrelevant to the way we worship God today, but this is really the baseline, the foundation, uh, and all the elements of the tabernacle and the priests and, and the blood sacrifices and the anointings and the incense and all this going on here, the veil, the, the, the mercy seat, the holy of holy, all this inside this, this tabernacle complex, which was basically just like a, a portable place of worship. It was the precursor to the temple. Um, these are all types and shadows uh, just pointing toward the Lamb of God who who would come in the New Testament to take away the sins of the world. It's all based right in these chapters of Exodus. But it's very, you know, th- you could spend weeks and weeks on this kind of thing, but we're going to try to do an overview today, which I think is is just helpful in and of itself to have a, a basic understanding of what's taking place here. Yeah, I always appreciate doing a little um, uh, touch point on what we did last time, just maybe a couple of important points. I think we were in Exodus 24 through 26. Right, exactly. So this is where where God they're they're at Mount Sinai now. Moses led the people out, and God calls Moses up to Mount Sinai to give him the law. And as he's going up, the people are all down below. God previews that they're gonna. We talked about last time that God gives a preview that they're gonna have a they're gonna conquer the promised land where they're going. But 39 years from now, they had no idea it would take that long to get there because of their disobedience. They're just wandering around. God was leading them, but. This whole older generation wouldn't even make it into the, the the promised land, but he was giving this this promise that they would conquer it. I think to give them hope. You know, they're out in the middle of their wilderness. There's there's they're just thinking, what are we doing? We're in, you know we don't know where we're getting our food, and it's it's very very difficult situation. And he's reiterating to them, don't be rebellious, obey me, and it's going to go well with you. And he, he's promising success. And, you know, and he's also promising that the peoples of the land are going to be driven out. And remember, Canaan at this time was populated by all these godless uh, peoples there. 
And he, God knew that if they just kind of went into the land and lived among them, that the Israelites would, would go astray. They'd join them with them in marriage, and they would be compromised spiritually. And so this is a good lesson for us, you know, from what we talked about last time, is we need to be very careful, this balance of, if you're a believer, how you, how you live in the world, but so that the world doesn't influence you in a, in a sinful way. There's a fine line here, because we want to be engaged in this world, especially with non-believers, and yet at the same rate, we don't want to be influenced away from our walk with Christ by non-believers. So there, there's a balance here, and God knew this uh, in advance, and he said, well, we're going to drive the people out, so there's not going to be this temptation, at least for you initially. And so he establishes this, this covenant with the people, between God and the people, and it's the covenant is ratified with blood, and it goes right to, again, to the New Testament. All of this is pointing forward to the Christ and so forth. It says in Hebrews 9, according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. And so this is establishing this early on, and we see, remember back in Passover, Bill, we talked about how the, the blood of the Lamb was put over the doorpost, so the angel of death would pass over their homes and only kill the, the people who didn't believe God and didn't do that in their own homes. Then there's the covenant of the law right here where Moses actually took blood and sprinkled it on the people. So they're, they're getting this idea that sin brings forth judgment. You're sinning against God, and, and the wages of sin is death, as it says in Romans 6.23. So they're getting this picture early on here that, that sin is very serious to God. It requires death blood to atone for sin. And again, this points forward to Jesus Christ, who would be the one who shed his blood on that cross and died for the sins of the world. Mm-hmm. David Wheaton is my guest. We are talking about Exodus, the book of Exodus, and how epic Exodus displays the awesome God. He certainly does. Let's move on to chapters 25 through 31, David, and maybe why are these chapters on the, the tabernacles so important? Yeah, so we, we last time we covered a couple of these chapters, 25 and 26. Mm-hmm. This is where it's all introduced, the, the tabernacle. And again, the tabernacle is the precursor to the temple. The tabernacle, as they would travel in the wilderness, would be what would be set up right in the middle of the camp of, of the Israelites. So you got to remember, there's a couple million people probably at least traveling around here. And so they're divided into the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the tabernacle would be set up right in the middle. And three, you know, 12 tribes on each north, south, east, and west side would be set up right around. So this was the central place uh, where, 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 God, where God's presence was in the Holy of Holies. This is where, he, you know, the, the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day would lead them then stop, and that's where they were to camp. So this, was, this is an incredibly significant—I probably could not overestimate uh, how significant the tabernacle was, the elements inside of it and so forth— and it was it was really a pretty simple complex. It was just a hundred feet by hundred feet long by a seventy five feet wide. So it was just a rectangle. It had seven and a half foot curtains around it, so you couldn't look in from the outside. And the only way to enter was from the east end. So you'd go in from the east end, and you come. Uh, first thing you come up to would be the altar of a burnt offering, and then there'd be a bronze laver. We'll talk about some of these things today. And then within this rectangle, toward the west side of it was what was called the tent or, or the, the covering. It was the only covered portion of this tabernacle. And this is where—and this was divided into two parts as well. There was a, a holy place where the priest would go in every day to make sure there was incense on the altar, that the, the lamp stand in there was lit and so forth. And then there was that veil, 
And then there was the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, where the priest would go in only just once a year on the Day of Atonement to sprinkle blood on that mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in there. And the inside of the Ark of the Covenant was the law, the tablets of the law that, that had been broken by men. And then the mercy seat was there on top of the ark, and then above the ark was that's where the presence of God was. So you can get the picture that the, the high priest would go in there and sprinkle blood of a, of a substitutionary sacrifice, an animal, on that mercy seat to atone for the, the sins of the people. So the, the, the imagery, the, the profoundness, the meaning of all this is very, very deep. And, and this is what took place, and that's why there's seven chapters in a row on it in the book of Exodus. Mm-hmm. Wasn't there something about the high priest on the day he would enter the Holy of Holies? Would he not have a rope tied around his ankle in the event that something happened when he was in there so they could pull him up? You might be right. I didn't study that in yeah. this, these particular chapters, but I think you're right. But but he did wear bells on the bottom of his garments. There were there were bells so that no, no one but the high priest could go in. Mm-hmm. And so people on the outside wanted to know that he was still alive, Yeah, <laughs> that he hadn't been, God hadn't struck him down. <laughs> yeah. And that's literally why he had bells. Now, if you read, if we, we're going to cover 27 through 31 today, and as you read this, let's skip right to the end in Exodus 31, where God appoints two men, Bezalel and Oliahab, or I think that's how you pronounce it. <laughs> they, these were two skillful men that God chose to construct all the various parts of the ark. And it says in Exodus 31 that they make that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat, the furniture of the tent, the table where the bread was and all its utensils, the lampstand, its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, the laver, the woven garments as well, the holy garments for Aaron and the priest, the garments for his sons, which was to, to carry on the priesthood, the anointing oil, the fragrant incense. These are to be made according to all that I have commanded you. This is just a summary, basically, of what we're talking about, of all that was made, all the elements. There's not tons of elements, but the specificity which God wanted them made is a big emphasis in these seven chapters. And really, it's telling us who God is and how he wants to be approached. In other words, who this God is, he is, he is king of the universe. He is holy. We're made in his image, but he's very different from us because he's perfectly sinless and holy, and we're not. And this is a great God. And then how he wants to be approached. He wants to be approached with great awe and reverence. He, we need to be ceremonial clean. There's washings taking place when you go into the tabernacle. You, you cannot go into the most holy place without atonement, without blood for sin. There has to be obedience to every last detail. There's nothing fast and loose here. We don't worship God. We don't come to him the way we want to come to him. We come to the way that he exactly Mm. prescribes. And that's the message loud and clear in these chapters. Such a good point, David. What was the um, sacrificial system like and, and and what was it for? Well, if you had to say one word, you'd say bloody. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> you know, great. In, in, the, in the book of Leviticus, I mean, we, and just, it's just hard for our Western minds, American minds, to even understand what this is like. This doesn't really take place in, in this country at all, and it's something very foreign to us. You know, Leviticus, the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament says, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. Atonement means you're, 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 you're becoming at one, or you're making peace with, you're satisfying an offended God. Uh, and so it is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And again, same thing here in the Old Testament. This is the same God, by the way. People like to say, oh, it's a different God in the Old Testament, 
different. No, it's exactly the same God in the Old Testament as the New Testament. They're com- they're in- inexorably linked, uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament. And so this is a, a bloody thing, this, this sacrificial system. There was five different types of offerings they would do. Not all of them were blood offerings, but there was a grain offering. So it was either, it was either an animal that was being sacrificed or, or produce. So there was a grain offering, but many of them were, were, were animals. And that was picturing, again, the substitutionary sacrifice uh, for the sins of mankind, just as, of course, Jesus was the Lamb of God who died on the cross for the sins of, of mankind. And so the, the point, Bill, here is that sin is, is taken very seriously with God, by God. It's not to be trifled with. When we sin, we are rebelling against the king of the universe. And, and there's a physical and there's an eternal death consequence for that. And it's a just penalty. Sometimes we can think, well, that seems really harsh. Well, that's because we're underestimating how holy and how magnificent and how awesome this holy God is. We we minimize him and think, well, he shouldn't be that offended. No big deal. He doesn't see it that way. And his view is the only one that matters. So sin deserves this physical and eternal death. But the good news is that God graciously provides a substitute so that we can be forgiven and made right with God. In the Old Testament, it was an animal, just picturing the coming of who would be the ultimate substitute for our sin which is Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. David Wheaton is my guest. We're talking about Exodus. When we come back, I'm going to ask him about uh, why so much emphasis on what the priests would wear in the tabernacle. We're continuing our study in Exodus, and we'll be right back. go out to some people in the listening area in the Duluth who are having trouble hearing. We're so sorry. We will put our best man on it. Go find our best man. <laughs> I'm not sure who it is, but we've got best men around here. All right. David Wheaton is my guest. We're continuing studying Exodus. And David, I'm curious as to why there's so much emphasis on what the priests would wear in the tabernacle. Yeah, there's an entire chapter on it, Exodus 28, and you think, isn't that a little overdone about what exactly the priest should wear? And it goes, again, it goes into great detail, far more than we're doing in our conversation today, but the entire chapter is about what the priest and his sons must wear and in the tabernacle. And it says in Exodus 28, verse 2, you shall make holy garments. And again, this is being conveyed to Moses, you know, to, to bring down and tell the people how they are to worship in this tabernacle. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. Now, that's interesting. Mm, is it ever? All, all the priests in the Old Testament came from the tribe of Levi. That was the priestly tribe. And so Aaron was the first priest. Uh, he was the brother of Moses, of course. And then Aaron's sons after him became priests, and then on and on it went. So they would be the ones doing the various sacrifice, sacrifices and duties that were taking place on a daily basis inside the tabernacle and this this chapter on dress was basically about they need to be set apart. They need to be consecrated for service 
like not some kind of like dressing down to make people feel more comfortable or something. This is this is not a jeans and a t-shirt situation here. Like we need to look relevant. This was <laughs> not this was the complete opposite of mm-hmm. that. And in really, you know, how we dress conveys the importance of the way we see a situation. And the tabernacle was of course of immense uh, importance because that's where the presence of God was with, with the Israelites as they were as they were wandering through. So just a couple things to touch on in this chapter. A lot of emphasis is made on this garment called the ephod, E-P-H-O-D. This was this long vest that kind of went over the robe of the priest and covered his front and back. It was very ornately made, with colored with gold and rings and filigree and bells and all these different things. It was just this amazing garment. And on this ephod was sewn in this breast piece. So that just went over his chest. And on that that breast piece that was sewn into his ephod, there were four rows of three stones, each with the so 12 total, each engraved with the name of the tribe, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it represented how uh, Aaron would go in as the priest, and he was representing these tribes, these people before God. Just as Christ represented us when he when he was crucified on the cross for our sins, it's the same thing going on here. Aaron is representative of the people before God. And so a couple of the things to 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 pay attention to here in this chapter, something that's kind of mysterious is on this breast piece, there was these two pouches or were these 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 gemstones called the Urim and the Thummim. And this is toward the, the latter part of Exodus 28, if someone wants to read it on their own, but these are these these special stones that Aaron would put over his heart when he went in before the Lord. And this was a way of Aaron being able to understand answers for the civil leadership of Israel. So if they needed an answer on should we go and attack these people? Should we should we resist? Should we do this? Should we do that? The civil leaders wanted to know that. The high priest would go in and there was some way that he could understand whether it's, it was kind of a yes or no answer, kind of like drawing lots in a way, but a different way of doing it, not really drawing lots, but getting an answer from the Lord as to, to what they should do based on these two gemstones that were put into the ephod right over Aaron's heart when he went in before the Lord. And just the last thing I'll mention about this chapter is much more could be said, but verse 36 talks about what the priest wears on his head. It's like, it's like a, almost like a turban. It said, you shall also make a plate of pure gold and shall engrave on it like the engravings of a seal, quote, holy to the Lord. And this is really the essence of what is taking place here in this in this chapter on dress and even the whole tabernacle as a whole. God is holy, he's sinless, and we need a mediator. We need a priest and a way to be right with God. And so that's what the priest represented, a mediator between God and men. And of course, someday, who would become the one mediator, mediator, the one and once for all mediator between God and men? The man, Jesus Christ. And that's what this is picturing. Mm. David, I don't want to put you on the spot, but you did a beautiful explanation of the, the gemstones of the, the Urim and the Thurim, Thurim that Aaron wore on his uh, breastplate. Was there a particular response that we learn about in Scripture of what happened that indicated uh, a yes or no sort of answer? Yes, I'm not exactly sure of that. I, I don't know whether I, I'm not sure. I okay. wouldn't be able to answer that. That's but cool. somehow the priest knew kind of a yes or no answer when the civil leadership would want an answer from God. The priest would go in and through these two gemstones somehow. And, and it's not very often mentioned in Scripture. I did a little bit of digging on it. It's not. It's this is kind of a 
rare mention of these this urim and thummim. So I don't really mm -hmm. know everything about that. I'm still trying to figure out how to pronounce them. And I've heard it explained, <laughs> you know, 10 different times, and it still doesn't really entirely sink in. So thank you for... Uh, for talking about some, that. Some things are mysteries. You know, God has let us know just what he wants to, and we'll just kind of leave it at that. Okay, if we were to jump into chapter 29 of Exodus, maybe the question I would have for you is, why is there so much emphasis on on consecrating priests and the and the articles of tabernacle? That's right. You know, so the whole chapter 28 is on how they should dress, yeah. and then chapter 9 is how they should be consecrated, or consecrated means how they should be set apart for service. And, and there was this elaborate multi-day, I think it was a seven-day ceremony that they had to go through, uh, you know, animal sacrifice, blood uh, appointed and put on their ears and their hands and their feet, all representing, you know, you want to be the hands and the ears and the feet of God ministering for your people. Um, lots of different things going on here, consecrating them for service. And, and the point of all this was for God to let them know that he was not only their authority— that he is transcend, transcend. He's not human as mortal, but also that we can be near him. But those who would come near him, very close to him, the priest, they that this this told them and everyone else that this emphasizes the gravity and commitment of what they are doing. They're serving the Lord in the tabernacle. It lets those being consecrated know that they are going to they're going into sober service of the Lord. This isn't like kind of a quick hey, run on run on in there, buddy, and go do the sacrifice. No, this is very sober, uh, very holy, very reverent situation. So this was meant to impress upon them and everyone else that you don't just waltz into the tabernacle and do it the way you want to do it and need it to be done God's way. Mm -hmm. So in, in the big picture, you'd have these priests coming in, and they'd offer these uh, these sacrifices, and there was this 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 phrase— they offer a lamb in the morning and a lamb in the night. Every night, every day, that would take place. So the second lamb would be offered at twilight, and she'll come with a grain offering and the same drink offering as in the morning. And it says this phrase, for a soothing aroma, an offering by fire to the Lord. And so I think the picture is here. You have God in the heavens, and he looks down upon us, and he sees sin, and he's angry. He's, he's, he's angry. He's wrathful over our rebellion against him. But then he smells this soothing aroma of the priests and, and the sacrifices, and sometimes they were, again, produce sacrifices coming up before him. And he, it's, like, it's like God's being reminded that atonement is being made for sin. Just consequence and just penalty for sin is being made. And again, pointing toward the person and work of Christ, this is exactly what God does when he looks at us who have been, who have been sinners. We've rebelled against him. He's angry over our sin, but then he sees Christ as having to pay the, the, the full required penalty for our sin, and God's wrath and justice is satisfied. Mm -hmm. David, we just have 40 seconds left, but is the purpose and meaning of incense in the tabernacle, is that part of what you just described? Yeah, I, I think it is. I mean, the, the burnt offering, the soothing aroma, that's what, how it was described there. But the incense inside the holy place, not the most holy place, but the holy place, that was tended to every single day. There had to be a constant... Mm burning of incense to the Lord. And I, I believe that probably had that was having the same uh, type of meaning behind it. Yeah. This was the last thing that you'd come to before the altar of incense, before you'd open that or go through the veil into the most holy place. So that's probably the situation. Thank you, David. We'll pick it up next time. David Wheaton has been my guest. Next up, Dr. Pierre Rosa.
People, I'm getting to do that right now. Dr. Pierre Rosa was born and raised in Brazil. After he came to faith, he moved to the U.S. and completed his study uh, and served for 10 years at Shadow Mountain Community Church. That's where David Jeremiah is. And he's now senior pastor at Grace Baptist Church in Salem, Oregon. He's a graduate of San Diego Christian College and Southern California Seminary. Pierre, welcome. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me on. So you had to go to Salem, Oregon to discover bad weather. Yes. Uh, actually, I love the weather here. Uh, the rain doesn't bother me at all because, you know, growing up in Brazil, we're used to that. That's true. You had a lot of rain, yeah. didn't you? Uh, yes, I did. Yeah. Was... But Southern mm-hmm. California, San Diego, come on. Yeah. Confess. Sometimes I, yes. No, I confess. I, I miss the sunshine uh, after three weeks of rain. <laughs> it gets boring after a while. So, <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've written a book called Ruth and the Kindness of God's Seven Lamp Posts to Guide You Home. And you and your wife through went through a pretty, your own very dark night of the soul, as they say. What what happened, and, and how did it influence your faith and your ministry? Yeah, well, what happened, Bill, is um, we lost two of our three children. I was in uh, full-time ministry for four months at Shadow Mountain when uh, we received the news that Luana, our second daughter, wasn't going to survive outside the womb. Um, she had a, a, a rare condition called a thanatophoric dysplasia, which means that um, her rib cage didn't have room to grow, so she was going to live only for 20 minutes outside the womb. Um, we were offered an abortion, uh, but we said no. A long story short there, we buried her 20 minutes after she was born. Um, hmm. But then two, two years later, our son Victor was born with uh, multiple heart defects, and did not survive his second heart surgery uh, at 13 months um, of age. So, um, you know, my wife and I uh, were warned that normally couples who lose children end up losing each other through divorce. But we decided to beat the odds, and uh, we weren't we weren't going to allow those devastating losses to to cause that. So we actually grew closer together, and uh, that's when our first daughter Julia came to faith in Christ because we told her. You know, she was old enough to understand life and death and salvation. We told her that uh, our two other children were in heaven, and if she wanted to see them again, she would need to come to faith in Christ. And that's when uh, she became a believer. So in a nutshell, that's the, the whole story there. Mm-hmm. I'm so sorry, Pierre. That is, is so heartbreaking. But I know that you are are trusting God through all of this, and you've got a story to tell, and this is so important. Maybe you can share with our listeners um, how to see the kindness of God when they're in the midst of their own tragedies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's part of the reason I wanted to write that book is because I wanted to find someone in Scripture that went through something similar, you know, devastating losses. Of course, it's there's no comparison. Uh, but what I wanted to do is um, see how God comforts people uh, through sorrow and through terrible losses like that. And I was uh, it was such a great experience to study the life of Ruth and, and the other characters in the book, too, Boaz and Naomi. And I also used that to preach uh, to the church here in Salem about the kindness of God. But um, yeah, this was about uh, 10 years ago now, uh, or 12 years ago, that we experienced that. 
but the book came out last year uh, through my study of the book of Ruth. But yeah, it was a very, very heart searching experience. And uh, I, I got some great reports from the people who read the book and also sat through my preaching through this series. So I'm trusting God to encourage them through this. Yeah, Ruth is an amazing story. I love it. And so I'm, I'm always, always interested in reading things on Ruth. So tell me, Pierre, wh- why do you think God often en- just en- enlists difficulty? Yeah, I think, Bill, that, um, in fact, from reading of Scripture, I think that God wants to purify our affections and desires. You know, when we desire the world too much, when we desire the things of this world too much, and all of us drift towards that. We, we don't naturally drift towards God. Our tendency is to drift away from Him. We, we'll never accidentally be godlier. Right. So I, I think He wants to wean us from the world so we can want Him more than uh, not just the things of this life, but we desire Him more than relief from suffering. So, And He also molds our character through this uh, so that we can resemble His Son more and more. Uh, and he reveals our character during adversity and the things that need to be adjusted in our lives. I certainly experienced that, and Ruth and Naomi also experienced that in the book of Ruth. You know, Pierre, you never drift into obedience, do you? No. Yeah, it's uh, usually the opposite. That's why Scripture always tells us to obey, always commands us to draw near, to, to keep the commandments and all of that. The opposite's never true because our hearts already navigate away from God in its natural tendencies. Mm-hmm. Pierre Rosa is my guest. He's written a book called Ruth and the Kindness of God's Seven Lampposts to Guide You Home. When you, uh, you, you write that the book of Judges lists eight cycles of disobedience, what are some of these and, and, and what can we learn? Yeah, the, we, they're all related to disobedience, uh, the, the disobedience of God's people, Israel during the transition between the theocracy and to monarchy in that nation. And we see that in the book of Judges very clearly, uh, that uh, his chosen people demonstrate unfaithfulness. Then God raises a neighboring nation to oppress them into discipline. And then God raises a judge to deliver them. Um, and some of these famous judges are Samson and Deborah. But that's the historical context of the of the book of Ruth, and it, it really mirrors our lives, doesn't it? Because when we 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 stumble and fall, and God uses something to uh, bring us back to to the path of obedience, and then we we stabilize, but then something happens, circumstances in life. So I think it's really a, a reflection of our life. The, the, the national life of Israel during that time is really a reflection of our individual lives uh, today too. Mm-hmm. Pierre, where did we get the idea, and maybe we've gotten this in modern church, that suffering mm-hmm. or difficulty is somehow some kind of punishment from God? Yeah, certainly not from Scripture. Um, some suffering, obviously, is self-inflicted or as a consequence of, of bad decisions that we make, but not necessarily the case. You know, God may use suffering to get our attention and difficulty, the same thing. But uh, if I read my Bible correctly, his goal is to always restore us to, to maturity, to, to a, a godly walk with God. You know, Paul confirmed that when he wrote to, to, the, to the Galatians, uh, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. So sometimes he, um, he uses suffering, difficulties in our lives to, 
to get us back. And uh, Jesus told his disciples, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that uh, stumbling blocks may come, meaning that we live in a fallen world, so we will always encounter difficulties and, and suffering. Even nonbelievers uh, deal with that. Um, you know, we know that where that all started in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam decided to, to disobey God. And as a result, as we know, suffering and death entered uh, the world and the human experience. But the good news, Bill, is that God enlists our tragedies for His honor and for His glory. There is a way to, to glorify Him through our suffering and our sorrow. You know, the Bible promises that all things work together for the good of those who love Him. Um, so uh, if anyone listening to this is experiencing tragedies and suffering— the cup is half full because God is going to find a way to be glorified in your suffering and uh, and, and for you to mature. And I, I speak from experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I understand what you just said, and sometimes it is you have to speak truth to yourself. You have mm-hmm. to be reminding yourself what the Word of God says about your identity and how much God loves you and how much He has a plan for your life. Um, otherwise, mm-hmm. you can get uh, off track pretty easy. That's true. Yeah. Amen to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you write in your in, in your book, you will experience extreme bitterness if you focus too much on what you don't have. So how can we focus mm-hmm. on what we do have instead? Yeah, and uh, I say that because of what we see in the life of Naomi in the beginning of the story. Again, I don't want to spoil it, uh, but she decided to assume a new identity, and she told everybody, "Call me bitter from now on because of my tragedies." Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she focused way too much on what she lost. Of course, uh, it's a life-changing tragedy, two life-changing tragedies, actually three that happened in her life. But the author of the book of Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Uh, so the, the, the call for us believers is to trust him that uh, whatever he withholds from us or whatever he takes away from us comes from the same hand that gives us in in, in wants to bless us. So when we focus on uh, Jesus and the author of our salvation, we do have so great a salvation, the Bible says, and we have also the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer, So, uh, and we have the hope of glory, uh, Colossians uh, tells us. So when we focus on all of these things and the things to come, uh, we live in the present in light of the great future that's ahead for us believers. Um, you know, and uh, our, our perspective changes, and and we and when we look at our lives from that perspective, we will conclude, Bill, that we are the richest people in the world in terms, not in terms of money, but in terms of uh, position in Christ. Uh, you know, the, the Beatitudes rem- remind us of, of that. Mm-hmm. Pierre Rosa is my guest. His book is called Ruth and the Kindness of God, Seven Lampposts to Guide You Home. Uh, Pierre, it doesn't seem that that Naomi had a correct view of the character of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she. I think um, she concluded prematurely mm-hmm. that God was was punishing her for for her venturing into a pagan territory. Because again, without spoiling the story, Book of Ruth is five chapters long. It's you can read it in fifteen minutes. But uh, what happened was they they there was a famine in the land, and her husband uh, Elimelech decided to take the family down to Moab, uh, and they were known enemies of Israel. So after her whole tragedy there, losing the husband and the two sons, she concluded that God was punishing her for for maybe venturing into Moab. Uh, But clearly that wasn't the case because God orchestrated that whole 
story. The, her life circumstances so that she would meet Ruth uh, and, uh, and that her daughter-in-law would be not only her new daughter and part of the family, but um, included in the royal line, in the messianic line, one of the ancestresses of Christ. So it's a beautiful story. Uh, really, the kindness of God is all over the, the pages there in that story. Mm-hmm. Pierre, as you've, you and your wife have shared the story of, of losing two children, has mm-hmm. that opened up a number of opportunities where people come and they, they trust their details of their life with you because they know you're going to understand? Yes, we, we, we call this our involuntary ministry <laughs> that God um, gave us, and mm-hmm. we, we welcome it. We, of course, we, we would have voted differently. <laughs> we would have opted not to go through it, but the fact that God has opened up doors of ministry through this, uh, people call us from time to time. They will say, well, I have a friend, or, or could you, do you, do you think you can maybe talk to, to this person that I know that went through this? And normally we say, sure, we'll talk to them, but the, the best thing we can do is to just pray for them and be there and not preach to them, but to listen and, and offer comfort if they ask questions and Many times they have, and we've been able to encourage people who go through similar tragedies that we went through. Mm-hmm. Dr. Oh. Pierre Rosa is my guest. His book is called Ruth and the Kindness of God, Seven Lamp Posts to Guide You Home. After a short break, we're going to come back and continue talking about his amazing book called Ruth and the Kindness of God. glad to have Dr. Pierre Rosa on the show for the first time. He's written a book called Ruth and the Kindness of God. Born and raised, were you born and raised in Brazil? What part of Brazil? I was born in Rio, but I grew up in Sao Paulo until I was 19 years old. Then I moved to uh, San Diego, California Mm -hmm. after that. Mm -hmm. And then Portuguese, the native language in Brazil, in Sao Paulo? Yeah, that's my, my first language here in our home. We speak both languages. Of course, my daughter prefers English because that's her first language, but we force her uh, to speak Portuguese so that she can learn both languages. I think that's really smart. Really smart. Yes. So mm-hmm. in your book, you uh, include a great little section uh, taken from Ruth on the portrait of a godly woman. What uh, what qualities jumped off the page for you in terms of, of Ruth? Yeah, uh, so Ruth is a great example of the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31. Um, and we, you know, the parallels are, are very obvious there, which makes it very interesting, Bill, because Ruth is a Moabitess. You know, the, they're enemies of Israel. They're, they're accursed, according to the Bible. They're part of the, their whole story, that the origin of that nation was through an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. And so she's the least candidate for being used of God, let alone being a part of the family. And uh, here, he are, here God shows his grace and kindness by allowing uh, someone that is outside of Israel to be not only a part of the family, but a model of virtue. So we have, for example, um, she, she 
personifies devotion, compassion, benevolence, dignity, uh, and in her interactions with her Boaz to show uh, purity and uh, a great, great example, not only for women to follow, but for us guys too. Mm-hmm. Well, what about Boaz? What do we, what do we know about him as a godly man? Yeah, in Boaz we have someone that uh, prefigures Christ in, in many ways. He resembles Christ. He's our kinsman redeemer. You know, that's an expression that we read in the book of of Ruth, a kinsman redeemer, someone who is called upon to redeem a widow according to the law of, of Leveret in the Bible, and. Um, his virtues in, in Scripture um, are, are very evident by the way he treats Ruth. He respects her. He, is, he waits for her. He treats her with uh, kindness and generosity. He follows Scripture. Uh, he obeys uh, God's Word for his life. He, he waits until the other, the, the closest to kin, uh, declines to redeem Ruth. So, um, yeah, it, in summary, men, men like him are in short supply today, I think, because our, our culture is confused about true manhood, and we will do well if we look at the life of Boaz and try to imitate his character. I, I would agree, Pierre. Mm-hmm. Um, so you identify four spiritual realities about God's kindness. What are these? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I outline them in the book. Um, I say there that God gives us more than we deserve, mm-hmm. because if you look at Scripture, we, we deserve condemnation. The, the Bible says, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So every, every breath that we take is a gift from God. He gives us more than we request. You know, we can never outgive God. He's a generous God. He gives us more than we expect, and He always gives us more than we give. Uh, and these are all evident in the narrative there in those uh, short uh, chapters of the book of Ruth. That's powerful reminders. I I love all of those. So thank you for sharing those. Um, mm-hmm. You say that our our in the book you you talk about our our walk with God as a series of U shaped episodes that move us mm-hmm. toward godliness. I love that idea. What do you mean by that, though? What I mean by that is uh, if you if you try to draw a line uh, in the in the plot of the story, is that uh, Ruth and Naomi descend into terrible tragedy. You know, so that's the the descending line there of the U. But then God brings them right back uh, up and uh, restores them from famine to now fullness. So, uh, and I, I say that because as believers, our lives are like that too. We all have instances where we hit rock bottom uh, for whatever reason, uh, circumstances of life, but then God always picks us up there. I know it feels like he's distant from time to time and it feels like he's taking way too long, but uh, God always intervenes in the life of his people and, and brings us back up to spiritual maturity and full restoration. And we actually come up on the other end better than we were pre-trial, pre-tragedy. Pre, um, so uh, I call this the comic plot, not, not because it's funny, but it's because of the way that uh, uh, authors use it to, to, to identify this type of, of plot where the protagonist of the story goes way down into terrible trouble, but then comes up and over overcomes uh, terrible odds there. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you say Christians, and I love this, Christians should be the happiest people on earth. I don't disagree. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you mean by that, Pierre? <laughs> yeah, I use that word in the same way that Jesus uses it in the Beatitudes. When he, when he outlines uh, the Beatitudes there, he starts each one by using a word in Greek that means truly happy. It's the joy and the happiness that have nothing to do with circumstances and everything to do with our position in Christ. 
it means extremely fortunate. So we, we need to live out that, that life. Uh, it's there for us. It's the condition that God has already determined for us. It doesn't mean the absence of sorrow or, or sadness or tragedies. It means that we learn to rejoice in them even through tragedies and trials. Uh, because Jesus himself said, uh, in this word, you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. So we have the hope of eternal life. Uh, not, nothing in this world compares with the glory to, to come for us. So um, that, that's why I say we should be the happiest people on earth. It, I mean, it doesn't mean we're not going to cry. We're not going to experience difficulties, but uh, God uses those not only for his glory, but to, for other people to see how we respond so that he can be glorified. Mm-hmm. Here, I don't mean to race right to the end of the book here, but in the in the back of that book, you include some highlights. So how mm-hmm. do these serve as an encouragement during uh, difficult times? Yeah, so I summarize the whole um, uh, predicament that becomes a blessing, not only in the life of Ruth, but in the life of true believers in Christ, that in that story, we see that the alienated become assimilated. That's the example we have in Ruth. The separated become secure. The bereaved become blessed, and the bitter become better. Uh, the, these are all highlights of the story. And, and my encouragement to, to our listeners today is to rejoice with the same gratitude for what God gives you and, and for what He withholds from you. Because according to the Bible, Book of Philippians, God began a good work in us, and He will finish it and, and He will complete it until the day of Christ. Mm-hmm. The moment you placed your trust in Jesus, God transferred you from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians one thirteen. Amen. I, I love that. That's when good you, preaching. Well, no, I'm just reading out of your book here. <laughs> oh, okay. So I, I'm making myself real smart right now. But uh, you were just saying in your book about, uh, here's what the Bible says about your assimilation. I just love that word, and I wanted to talk about it a little, a little bit more. By his kindness, we are assimilated into the family of God. Mm-hmm. You place your trust in Jesus. The moment you placed your trust in Jesus, God placed you into the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. That's a half-court three-point shot. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's what Scripture says, that a transaction that takes place uh, when believers um, respond to the message of the gospel. Just like Ruth, we are assimilated into the family, meaning we had no business being in the family of God because of our sinfulness, but because of His grace, he places us in Christ, uh, in the universal body of Christ, but then also in, in a local church. Um, of course, we, we need to make sure we are uh, being a part of a local church where we're serving, and we have our family there. We have uh, brothers and sisters who will care for us and for one another. But, yeah, that's, uh, uh, that's what I mean by assimilated into the family of mm-hmm. God there. And we, we see that in the genealogy of Christ, for example, in Matthew 1. When he includes terrible sinners that w- that were um, redeemed, we have not only uh, Ruth there, but we have Rahab and and and, and David. Man, the, the guy who committed premeditated murder and adultery. Now, if these guys can make it to the family of God, I mean, God can do the same to all of us. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, born again believers experience a similar journey from separation to true security. So if you are not in a place of being born again, I, today's the day. Amen. Today's yeah. the day. Put your faith yeah. in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So, uh, Pierre, just this is an aside, apart from your book, but thank you for writing it and letting me uh, talk about it today with my listeners, Ruth and the Kindness of God, Seven Lamp Posts to Guide your Home, Guide You Home. Uh, a listener chimed in. Uh, 
this word C-U-R-I-T-I-B-A, how do you pronounce that in Brazil? Uh, Curitiba, that's the, that's the, the a city. I'm so glad I didn't try to say that. <laughs> do you have any idea? Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, he said we're currently hosting a foreign exchange student from there, and so oh. far he has no interest in spiritual matters, but he's a nice kid. So maybe you could say something in Portuguese to him, and then uh, David could play this uh, podcast to this student. Yeah, so my, I would say to that student, um, Aceite a Jesus Cristo como seu Salvador, which I just said, receive Christ as your Savior. <laughs> <laughs> I love a guy who cuts right to the point. <laughs> well, it's 71 degrees in São Paulo. What is it in, in Salem, Oregon today? It's actually in the 60s here today. There's sunshine coming through uh, okay. my window now, but it's going to rain in the next few days. Nice. I so appreciate meeting you, Pierre. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. Thank you, Bill. God bless you. Yeah, God bless you. Dr. Pierre Rosa has been my guest. Pierre Rosa, R-O-S-A. And his book, again, is called Ruth and the Kindness of God, Seven Lampposts to Guide Your Home. We're going to continue our Old Testament extravaganza today. With Jay Warner Wallace is going to join me in our Old Testament series. We're going to talk about Aaron. That'd be Moses' older brother by three years. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.